This is Fergus Hodgson on the Impunity Observer podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Please subscribe. Go to impunityobserver.com forward slash podcast for our archives. And you can follow us on YouTube, SoundCloud, and on all your podcast apps or feeds, right? So we have an old friend of mine and a brilliant author and journalist. His name is Martin Barillas. He was a U.S. diplomat back in the 1980s and 90s, and he is now a journalist with churchmilitant.com and Zinger News. But what I want to explore today is his novel, Shaken Earth, which is set in Guatemala in, from memory, the 1920s. I read this book a couple of years ago, and it is a fascinating, in-depth historical novel. So Martin, welcome to the show, and let's get stuck into this, this fascinating book. So a wonderful literary endeavor. Well, thanks very much, Fergus. Uh, I appreciate it. And I want to extend my congratulations to you also for uh, your own endeavors. Uh, I watch it, uh, your, your Twitter most every day and uh, I'm uh, much the wiser each, each time I take a look. Well, the, I, I, I appreciate that. And I should note that Martin is a brilliant linguist and his book has smatterings of French and Spanish and it's a beautifully rich, ende- rich endeavor, rich piece of work. Now, so... Yeah, you can follow Martin on Twitter and he gives, I mean, he's one of these few journalists who really shoots from the hip and just calls it as it is, which I appreciate so much. So Shaken Earth, for people who have not been to Guatemala or live there, what does Shaken Earth refer to? Why did you choose that title of your book? Well, um, I studied anthropology in my youth and it was uh, perhaps a way of understanding the country where I spent so much of my uh, growing up. I wasn't born there, but uh, uh, spent significant parts of my life there. There is a famous anthropology, uh, anthropological book. I can't remember the name of the author. It was called Sons of the Shaking Earth. And I've, it's in a way a gloss on that. Volcanoes and, and earth tremors are a, an important part of the daily life of Central America. It's one of the most active uh, seismic areas in the whole world. And uh, it's a pity that uh, there isn't more um, uh, electricity generated th- by uh, thermal, geothermal sources there. I wanted to call it Shaken Earth. Um, this an allusion uh, to um, a passage in the Bible where it speaks to um, the shaking earth as, and I see it as, a, as an allusion to um, higher powers of uh, God looking uh, on at uh, his, um, his people, and it's set in 1932-33, and it follows the life of uh, a young couple from the elites who have to meet with unexpected challenges and get unexpected help in the midst of, uh, of danger and, and upset. Yeah, so forgive me, yeah, so not late 19, 1920s, early 1930s, and it is a period of, it's the interwar period, Right, right, leading into the Second World War in a, a fascinating time in Guatemala's history. So, yeah, let's let's just confirm there. I mean, I want to talk about. Let me actually let me just clarify too my take on this Shaken Earth title that about the volcanic activity. People might want to know that Antigua was the original capital of Guatemala, but there was such uh, frequent 
earthquakes that people move the capital to Guatemala City, which is today the capital. And still the earthquakes and the volcanic activity are frequent, right? So when I was living there, I still remember vividly, I mean, there were earthquakes all the time, but one time we were out driving and the car was just going all over the place. We're thinking, what is going on with the vehicle? But of course we looked to the right and the lights were fluttering and moving in the streets beside us. So it is a day, part of daily life. And to such a degree that the cities in Guatemala have very short buildings because taller buildings would be vulnerable to this shaken earth. And maybe I'm thinking maybe three years ago, there was such volcanic activity that many people died and there was uh, bad air pollution in the Guatemala city. One of the, I think the country club was overrun with lava. So it really is still to this day, an important part of life in Guatemala. But so why don't you tell us then, you said you lived in Guatemala, but you were born in the United States. You have this deep, let's say family lineage and connection to the country you care about deeply. So why don't you care about what makes you care so much about Guatemala and what it means to your family? My father uh, was born and raised in Guatemala, and we came from a long line of, I guess, minor aristocrats, what the left would call the oligarchs. They um, came to Mexico in 1585, the first that we know of. And uh, at about 1600, a, um, an ancestor was given a grant uh, of land, uh, an encomienda, as they said in Spanish, to an area uh, not far from uh, Guatemala City and uh, along the Lake Amatitlan. And the, our ancestors gave their name to the place, or Santa Elena Varillas is a little town there. Uh, they formed uh, plantations there at uh, Via Canales and Via Nueva and um, prospered along the way. And then one of my uh, ancestors had uh, the idea of joining with um, the, the so-called reform, where the temporal power of the church uh, was challenged. Uh, that was in the 1870s. The dictator, Estrada Cabrera, was um, he passed away and a, the, the, ref, the so-called reformers came in. Manuel Lisandro Varillas was the um, vice president. And when the president, um, Barrios, was uh, invading El Salvador uh, at Chalchuapa, uh, that was in 1886, I believe. He was killed in battle. And my ancestor, Manuel Lisandro, came back to the capital and basically said, uh, hey, I'm in charge, boys. Uh, make me president. And so he was. And he continued in the presidency um, for six years and voluntarily left. And one of his contributions was to bring in, uh, to invite German, Belgian, American uh, entrepreneurs to take over the lands that had been seized from the church and seized from the Indians and install coffee plantations because the he and the reformers saw that European business uh, would, uh, and businessmen would um, increase the fortunes of Guatemala. Uh, he, he left and uh, his successor, who was a relative of his, Reina Barrios, took over, but then he was murdered. And it was um, another president, his name escapes me now, who took over, who became one of the worst in Latin American history. And one of the things I like to say about Guatemala is that it forms a microcosm for understanding or trying to understand Latin American history. It, it figures in very prominently in the, in the Spanish conquest uh, when they brought in 
the Mexican allies in the, in the 1500s to conquer the area. And my, I have family who descended from those Mexicans who came uh, with um, Alvarado. So I've struggled to understand, you know, um, certainly the conquest and all of that is remote. What was more present to me uh, through my father was his participation at what was called the, the revolution of 1954 when, and 44, 44 was the revolution when the dictator Ubico, who figures into my novel, uh, was overthrown. And then a subsequent one in 54, when a leftist, Arbenz, was overthrown. My father worked for the government then as, a, as an architect and civil engineer uh, in Guatemala. And so I struggled to understand. And so that set me on a course um, where I find myself today, looking at power relationships, uh, what was the influence of the United States and what went on there, the influence of Germany. Germany was a very important actor in Central America and Guatemala, starting from the 1880s and forward until the Second World War. And they were virtually eliminated during the war. Yes, the, w- one point there about the importance of Guatemala in Latin American history, it is the case that many Central Americans see Guatemala City as the de facto capital of the region. So it is a prominent place. And even though maybe Panama City has risen in more recent times, historically Guatemala City was that political center. Now, your book just covers such a lot of ground. And as you say, Jorge Ubico was president at that time in the book. And you 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 weave a bunch of different stories together to, I guess, discuss the class structure, the role of the Catholic Church in the country, the tension between the various indigenous communities and the desire for the Spanish to, I guess, integrate them into the society. And I hate to say it, but a lot of these themes seem like they have continued. (laughs) These sort of top-down kinds of uh, efforts at reform or whatever you want to call it, they they go way back. I mean, my ancestor, Manuel Lisandro Arias, he started seizing land that had belonged to the Indians in, in perpetuity, and they had documents to prove that it, that were there, it was theirs. And they came to the capital in 1888, thousands of people begging him, you know, please let us keep our lands. Don't steal it from us again. You know, there was even a, a, a push to force them to wear the clothing that the government decided they should wear, rather than wearing the clothing that they... Traditional garments. No, you should wear European clothing. And, and Ubico, for example, he forced impoverished Indians to purchase white lab coats so they could sell in the marketplaces. Of course, I mean, he, he ran the country like it was his, his own, his personal, personal fiefdom. It was eventually actually the middle class that revolted against him because of the, the onerous um, controls and his, the secret police that he inherited from uh, his predecessors. He even had a murderer. He, had a, he kept a murderer in prison that, uh, and he would put him on release to kill people that he uh, had designated. Okay. And in the book, Shaking Earth, yeah, there's just a lot in it. I think from memory, it's around 560 pages. Yeah. And so you take various characters throughout the different ports. I think Puerto Cortez, maybe in uh, Honduras, into Havana. Yeah. And so there's a, it's just a very rich, let's say, tapestry or description of the region at the time. And one of the themes is this, let's say, engagement with foreign powers, right? Especially the Germans, 
And you even mentioned Japanese involvement just briefly. Now, let's just first deal with the Germans, though. As you mentioned, there is a little known, I mean, there, there was a German role, definitely more, it's very no, visible in, in Chile and Argentina, but throughout Latin America, there has been a German role and it's not necessarily well understood. And you made that a prominent theme in the book. Why was that? One of the things I wanted to do was to, sh to show the reader that, you know, Central America is really not that far away. It's, it's closer to Texas than, uh, than California. And it had, at the time, you know, you had United Fruit, which was like the apple of the time. I mean, imagine it's still the case. You can buy a banana in the United States. It's brought to you from a couple of thousand miles away or whatever it is. It costs you less than an apple that came from 30 miles away. And it's, it, it, it required tremendous uh, uh, understanding of, of botany, of plant diseases and so forth. And Guatemala was the center of it, there, uh, of that kind of um, technology. So the Germans, their role was in coffee. Even though the United States was one of the biggest consumers, the Germans were very much involved in the planting of coffee, the grading of coffee, and exporting it to Europe. And, and, and those relationships continued forever. I had a, my godfather, for example, he sold to the same Germans from before the Second World War all the way until his passing in the 1990s. These are long-term relationships. And so I tried to show that with family ties and not vilifying Germans. Just describing what was happening, not really make, passing moral judgments on anyone there. Yeah, there, there's plenty. I mean, a character who uh, is passing in, in it, he's uh, Actually, who's actually a historic, another historical figure, along with Ubico, was a, a German Lutheran pastor who lived in Guatemala. And in 1933, he was called home to Germany, where he became an, a prominent Nazi. He makes an appearance in, in the book. In some ways, it's a, it's a bit of a tragedy that the German presence in Guatemala has really taken a step back. Although, of course, there are still German schools. Taught at the German school. Yeah. What? happened to the German presence in Guatemala, my understanding was that a lot of them were basically forced to leave during the Second World War. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, once Germany, uh, once Guatemala declared war on Germany, which it was, it was forced to do, during their, their production of um, sugar, citronella, cotton, coffee, whatever it was, to the United States, declared war, and the United States sent FBI agents. They combed the country looking for German nationals. Now, Germans, on the whole, when they're living overseas, even if they have children born there, much like Americans, they want them to have German citizenship. So they, be, they were declared enemy nationals. And so their properties were forfeit to the government. They were sent away. In fact, there were instances of German Jews who narrowly escaped being sent to their certain death uh, in Germany. They were German nationals, by according to the United States government and, and, and the Guatemalan government. Oh, well, they're enemy nationals. We should send them back to Germany. Fortunately, there were some State Department uh, officials who decided, well, let's, let's send them to Texas instead. So they had to live with Nazis up there in, in, in Texas and, and camps. So much of their, their, their business ties were, were, were allayed during the war and it decades for them to recover. But they're still, they're still families. So, yes, yeah, some people 
escaped that uh, net trying to remove Germans from Guatemala. Especially if they'd become Guatemalan nationals. Right. And you're, you're right that people in Guatemala, for whatever reason, and maybe you want to touch upon this, do tend to retain their loyalties. There's even an Italian club in Guatemala City that so if you have an Italian passport, you can become a member. And it's just strange. You think how many Italians are hanging out in Guatemala City, but enough of them to have a lovely, basically, country club of their own. So it is forging of a identity in Guatemala is just a persistent theme that is confusing. And yes, yeah, so your book touches upon the foreign engagement. And you do make one mention or a brief mention of a Japanese role. Do you want to talk about that? Where is it more just speculation? I'm trying to, you know, it's been three years since I wrote the book. And the I do, well, I, I can talk, speak to one aspect is there was a, a faint, one of the earliest photographers in, in uh, Guatemala was a Japanese uh, uh, man. And he, um, I can't remember his name, but he um, became a Catholic, sincere, a sincere Catholic. And he was famous for making, uh, doing portraits, but also portraits of, of dead babies, uh, which is kind of a macabre sort of thing, but it was uh, back in the early part of the 20th century, it was something that um, he did. And, and in fact, I have a, somewhere, I have a photograph of my great, my grandparents uh, there uh, after, on their wedding day that was taken by him. Wow. Okay. Well, in one of the just precious elements of a fiction work is that you can be more, let's say, politically incorrect right? You can just tell it like it is. And as I say, you're not really passing judgment. You're just describing what, what's happening or the way things were. And do you mind sharing which particular elements do you think of this story would be hard to say in a nonfiction setting, right? So whether it's the class structure, the um, the struggling for identity of the Ladino people the, or the Mestizo people, what, which elements do you think that you, you wanted to inject that perhaps are best presented in a fiction, work of fiction? Well, to write the book, to, to write this, you know, I've perused, read histories, anthropologies, geology, and, you know, there are stories, as you said, that are best told perhaps from a fictional point of view because there's no documentation. You know, it's a historian relies on written proof, you know, but you might not know uh, what led to the decisions that were made and that were recorded. Sure. That I call the black box. You know, how was it that this came about? So I think the interrelationships of people and how they're able to, they, they have an identity, but they're able to perhaps uh, surpass that. And that's something that I present in the book is you have this elite couple and because of circumstances, they are find themselves in unfamiliar territory, and they have to turn to people who they might not have thought uh, would be there for them. So there's, for example, there's a, a passage, a sequence in the, in the book where one of the two protagonists, Mariano, has been uh, reduced to um, you know, a, a very, very sorry state, and he returns, and he's walking down the street. And people don't recognize him, people that he knows. And it's a, it's a shock to him. You know, these are kinds of internal kind of mechanisms that, that might not. One of the elements which stuck out to me of the story, like you said, the chief, I mean, there are different stories that basically 
cross paths throughout. So it's almost like a Love Actually scenario, that film, you know, where there are these different stories within a story and they, they it, at various points, they cross paths. But the main central story is of a young couple that are somewhat privileged class, but you paint the picture of how that is not set in stone. And they're very conscious of this, of trying to maintain it and planning ahead. And it shows that obviously that status or level of, of preeminence or aristocrat uh, status in the, in the country was very important to one's success and also preserving family lines and loyalties. And often foreigners may not appreciate how important family lineage is in a place like Guatemala. So if we can fast forward to today where Guatemala in some way is a country living beyond its own borders, right? Where a huge, there's a huge diaspora population. And I remember I went to a concert there and there was this bizarre paradox maybe of people showing great pride in being Chapin or Guatemalan. And they have this song, Soy Chapin de Sangre, basically. I'm a Chapin, I'm a Guatemalan by blood. And then they're also saying, thank you to all those living outside for maintaining us or mantenernos for, for keeping us going. Because of course, about a fifth of the Guatemalan economy is simply remittances from abroad. It's, it's an incredible amount of money given that it's only, let's say, a small minority of the population. I mean, it's a minority of the population living abroad and then sending their surplus cash back to Guatemala. And that's enough to basically put a huge bump to the economy. Now, this creates all sorts of confusion as to what Guatemalan identity is. And, and when people are living abroad for even generations like you, like you are to some degree, what are they clinging to? So if people go into your book, what message or what sense of identity, if there is any coherent one, are you sharing about Guatemala? Because I, I read the book and really found it illuminating, gave me a sense for the history. But I don't know if you think there's a coherent theme, whether it's the strength of the Catholic Church or the political upheaval that seems to be ongoing. How can we relate these themes to today? I think what I was, one of the things I was trying to put across is solidarity. Uh, you, you know, it's the book is divided into two volumes, so to speak, and yes. there are from the first volume is only the two protagonists who are brought over to the second. That's Mariano and and Soledad. And what you find is people going beyond themselves, beyond their identity, uh, out of human solidarity. You know, you have this fallen priest who is um, takes pity on uh, Soledad and uh, abandons his, his ambitions to help. There is a, a pivotal, also a pivotal figure uh, who um, is appealed uh, on the basis of morality. Please help. And he does. Mariano uh, is, had been a tough guy, a mercenary, and yet he's been reduced to relying on a boy to get him to, get him to safety. It's, and it's something I'd, I'd wish Guatemalans would think about to embrace is to reach out beyond class, for example, um, uh, beyond ethnic uh, markers. And I think that can only be through embracing uh, human freedom and, and the value of the individual. You know, so often there, these systems, you know, Marxism, uh, for example, that would crush the individual for the sake of the mass has, it's, Guatemala has paid a terrible price for it. On the other side, I'd say the privileged class 
all too often they um, don't adhere to the morality that they espouse and allow people at the bottom to perhaps move up. They, they don't allow a meritocracy at times. It's, there's, there's maybe a, a protected class or a, 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 a sort of almost like an internal form of protectionism. Buena familia, as they say in Spanish, the good, good family. And I would ask the, the privileged class, why don't you want these other people to become as wealthy and successful as you are? And it's, uh, it's a pity, it's a terrible pity that there is such crime in Guatemala City when the rest of the country is not nearly at that level. Government is, um, you know, it's, you have bad government. Uh, and government uh, that doesn't secure the the rights or or the safety of of the majority. It's you know that that a child can be murdered in front of his kindergarten because a gang is extorting the owner of the kindergarten. It's just it should blow their minds. <laughs> How is that possible? Yeah. Look. Yeah. So this is this. These are very sensitive issues because. First, I think it was last year, there was a news story that there was a day during which there was no reported murder in Guatemala City. And basically no one could remember when that had ever happened before, right? And so murder is just part of life basically there. And also even someone as benign as a dentist will be getting calls and threats of extortion. And so my dentist, for example, in Guatemala City would not list her phone number or address or anything on the internet or anywhere really. It was almost like just word of mouth to come and get her services. It really is a profound part of the society, this extortion and violence. It was not that way 30 years ago. It's only got, but it's only gotten worse. Uh, okay. Back then it was more the, the politicians who were targeted, you know, the American ambassador, you had conflict up in the, in the mountains between the, the leftists and the army, uh, the army's retaliations. Uh, what I find curious is, is a kind of a, a whitewashing of, of the army. I'm certainly no fan of, of communists, but be, what was the alternative being offered to people, the majority of the people? Rather than, rather than capitalism or de democratic capitalism, it's oligarchical uh, uh, mercantilism. Right. Mercantilism is a word that really does apply to Guatemala and many Latin American countries where there is this not necessarily centrally planned economy, but definitely protected class. So even one of your hopes for Guatemala is that there can be some kind of more unified Guatemalan identity that respects the individual and meritocracy rather than being so just starkly divided. Yeah, uh, and and I think that can only come from valuing the the individual, holding the individual as as sacred. I'll get Christian here. Is that every individual is an icon of God, and so that has to be recognized. It has it can't merely be words in the in the Constitution. It has to be shown that yes, this is this is what government is for. It's here to protect your rights. It's to protect you from assaults of from criminal organizations, people. In Guatemala, deserve it. To me, it could be like Switzerland in the tropics. It's an incredibly beautiful country. There are few places in the world, and I've I've lived in South America, I've visited Europe, I've been all over the United States. There are places that have said, for example, just the variety of climates. Up in Quetzaltenango, people grow wheat and they grow apples. 
down on the coast, they have bananas in the middle level. They've got coffee, every fruit imaginable. You have the lakes. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. And I think all too often there are those, I would say, I could speak to the, to the left, who see Guatemalan history as a, as a melodrama. I like to say it's, a, it's perhaps even a tragic, a tragic of comedy uh, because you have heroes, yet they're perhaps not the most prominent people. And the left always holds up Arbenz, the president uh, from 52 to 54, as, as this, you know, the Solon of democracy. You know, he was another military officer who mm. probably had the, his one of his associates murdered uh, the, uh, the year before his election, Arana, and uh, manipulated by his uh, limousine or liberal wife, I like to say caviar communist wife, who was from El Salvador and from the elite. And yet he, what, he thought he was going to be accepted by the communists. Yet when he was in Cuba in the early 60s, Castro held him out as, as a, look at this failure. This is what happens when you, you uh, resign. So that's a pathetic case. It was, it's mixed. There was no restoration of democracy in 54. It was status quo ante, where you had a string of, mil of army officers, ex with the exception of Mendes Montenegro, who uh, was murderous in his own way, again, imposed by the United States for its own reasons. And again, you know, the United States, it's fumbling, you know, and it's hard to say whether everything, I can't imagine that everything the United States has done officially in Guatemala or Central America has, has been for the best. I mean, even now, you have the State Department flying the gay liberation flag in Guatemala City from the embassy or, and Regardless of what one thinks of that, of what that means, or the issues of you know free speech and so forth, in a country as traditionalist as Guatemala, where ninety-five percent of the people, ninety percent of the people are practicing Christians, that's not the way to influence the country positively. And then interfering with with uh, with its judicial process, with its legal process, that's again it's a top-down kind of effort that is bound to fail and only cause further resentment. Yeah, it's one of those themes that Steve Hecht, our editor-at-large, writes about all the time, this sowing of discord from the United States and other foreign uh, powers, right, with their embassies and foreign aid and how they get in the way of the rule of law and, and yeah, some sort of unified Guatemala because they pit the classes or different groups against each other. Now, and that's just an ongoing problem, why don't you share with us your, I guess, reflections now that the book has been out for a couple of years and whether you're working on another one, what's, what's the future of Martin Barilla's author? Well, I'm making notes and uh, taking names. I've, I have to think what be most palatable to um... English-speaking uh, readers, I've, although I've had a few Spanish, native Spanish-speaking people who've really enjoyed it, I've thought to bring it, bring the story forward, if not the characters, to the 1980s, which is a period that I'm familiar with. I would really love to do something on uh, American leftists uh, and their uh, their conceits in Central America, the people that we call the sandalistas. These were people like uh, Bill de Blasio, who went to Nicaragua and um, 
live quite well, espousing the uh, leftist agenda of the murderous Sandinistas in, in Nicaragua. They were tolerated in Guatemala, uh, and they they wouldn't have had much of they, but they were there. You know, they had the backpackers coming through. That would be an area uh, I think I would like to uh, examine. Yeah, that is fertile ground, I must say, for another work of fiction that would give the context to help people make make history more attractive. Because one thing I say in my review of your book, which we'll include in the in the show notes, is that history for many people seems like such a dry topic, and this work of fiction makes it just brings it alive. It makes it so exciting and entertaining, and so it's a much more amenable form of history. And of course, the 70s and 80s, with the Fidel Castro influence, trying to basically overthrow governments and install little Cubas around Latin America, just makes for a lot of drama, a lot of violence, unfortunately. And there's a lot of space for explaining this through fiction to a foreign audience. Yeah, there's, there, there's so many stories, you know, I that I could, I think that I know of lived in Guatemala and Central America, and that I served in Buenos Aires. And uh, I see some of the same issues there. It's a, such a highly civilized people. I've seldom met a people who are as well read as Argentines, yet they've got a crazy economy and they're benighted by uh, Peronism. It's like a cancer. Yeah, I've actually written about Peronismo and the way Argentina basically needs an amputation to just cut that piece of history out, you know, that whole ideology or way of thinking out of the country because it has been just debilitating for the last few decades, the centralization of power and giving union control over many industries. So get the book, Shaken Earth by Martin Barillas. You can see he's got the lovely uh, new... Uh, cover there right behind him. I read this one in full and gave my own review. And as I said, especially at the time, because I think I read it when I just moved to Guatemala, it proved to be useful just for giving me a richer understanding of how things came to be. So it is a wonderful story of history and a way for people to get a sense for Guatemala and Central America with many themes carrying through to today. So I hope you do work on another book. Obviously, Martin, I, I, I likewise appreciate your work and I look forward to the next one. So thank, thank you for your time, mate. Thank you. Thank you, Fergus. And uh, I wish you every success in your, in your endeavors. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's really great to see this kind of journalism.